Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The last month has been brutal for California's farm workers. Floods threatened and damaged rural communities. Those same floods made doing work and getting paid impossible. And then there was the horrifying shooting in Half Moon Bay. But life as a California ag worker is always difficult. Despite the laws on the books, many of the people who work on our farms are exploited, living in substandard housing, and getting paid illegally low wages. These are all open secrets, and yet these injustices go on like they have for decades. We'll talk about that long arc, and we'll check in with reporters who've been covering the immediate fallout from the floods and the shooting. That's coming up next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We start today with three reporters who are pressing on multiple angles on local farm workers living in working conditions in the wake of the storms and shooting. Joining us this morning are Farida Jabvala Romero uh, with KQED, of course. Farida, hi. Hi, Alexis. Good morning. Marisa Kendall, who covers housing for the Bay Area News Group. Welcome, Marisa. Thank you. And Vanessa Rancano, housing reporter with KQED News. Welcome, Vanessa. Hey, thanks. Good morning. Uh, Farida, let's start uh, with you. What have we learned since the mass shooting in Half Moon Bay about the working conditions at the mushroom farms there on the coast? Yeah, so um, this mass shooting, because it happened at at two mushroom farms and the victims uh, were farm workers, most or all of them immigrants, it really has brought uh, more attention to some of the issues that agricultural workers have been dealing with in our state for a very long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know that these are some of the most vulnerable in our workforce. And a big part of that is that nearly 60% of farm workers are undocumented And that's according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. So people are often afraid to report or complain, um, you know, about any problems at work, uh, including not receiving fair wages uh, or other issues they may be encountering because they're worried it could lead to losing their jobs or or even worse, um, to deportation. And so a day after the shooting, Governor Gavin Newsom visited Half Moon Bay. Uh, He spoke with farm workers at the two farms um, called Concord Farms and California Terra Garden. And he said shortly after during a press conference that the workers at one or both of these farms were making $9 an hour, which is 
almost half of our current minimum wage here in California of $15.50 an hour. And the governor also said that they were living in, in shipping containers. Uh, local officials who also visited those sites said they were living in basically shacks without running water and electricity. And uh, in a way, that moment, you know, the governor decrying these conditions so publicly in connection to the shooting, uh, you know, um, it was uh, it was a really remarkable moment because you have the most powerful person in California government mm -hmm. basically talking about what sounds like wage theft against some of the uh, most vulnerable workers in our state. And unfortunately, it's it's not uncommon uh, for low wage workers in agriculture and other industries, uh, especially if they're immigrants and they're undocumented to yeah. uh, to be victims of these you know conditions. Marisa Kendall, uh, Farida mentioned this, the housing, uh, substandard housing on this uh, mushroom farm in Half Moon Bay. You've done some really amazing reporting following up on how that housing got there, who was really responsible for knowing that it was there because the county and the state claimed they didn't know. So talk to us a little bit about that housing and how those conditions sort of got so bad without anyone noticing. Thank you. Yeah, right after the shooting, we started looking into this and nobody wanted to take responsibility. All everyone was saying, we didn't know it was there. It's not our fault. You know, nobody was was taking responsibility for who was supposed to be overseeing this housing. So we dug a little deeper and we discovered that the county of San Mateo is responsible for overseeing this housing, which is unusual uh, throughout the state. Most counties leave that up to the state for oversight. San Mateo County doesn't. So this was their job. Um, but the county is saying we had no way of knowing it was there because it wasn't permitted. So it's a bit of a catch 22. It was illegal. They had no permits. And the county's saying, well, because they didn't have any permits, how are we supposed to know there was even anyone living there? Mm -hmm. um, they're saying we don't have the resources to just go door to door looking for this housing. We rely on complaints. But of course, that can be flawed because a lot of the people living here, they might be undocumented. They are really reluctant to complain if they're living in substandard conditions because not only could they lose their job, they could lose their housing. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting because you even had um, and then we, we realized, too, you had a couple. We had some officials who did go to these farms before the shooting and they saw these code violations. Um, the vice mayor of Half Moon Bay went and some other advocates, but they said they didn't say anything because they were worried if they did and the county shut down the farms, all these workers would be out of a job and homeless. I mean, that's the thing. This whole agricultural labor market is all about looking the other way. It's just brutal. I, I And I, you know, I have, Marisa, I've been a little worried that, uh, or a lot worried, actually, that in our search for answers around these farms and what happened there, that the people who actually worked there and lived at the farms are going to end up in even worse circumstances than they were in before. So what do we know about how those people are, are faring, where they're housed, like the other workers at the farm? Yeah, so there's uh, 37 people who were displaced, including, I believe, 11 children. Uh, right now, they're all staying at a motel that's being paid for by the county. And supposedly, they're going to be staying there indefinitely uh, while the county and a bunch of nonprofits in the area work to find them some sort of more permanent situation. So the county was actually putting out a call for help uh, to residents in the area, you know, if anyone can open their doors 
uh, to some of these people working with Airbnb and some other nonprofits, because as we know, housing is really expensive there. Mm -hmm. And then more long term, uh, Terra Garden, at least, has committed to building new, better farm worker housing on its property. Uh, but that won't be done for about a year. And we don't know yet what the situation is with Concord Farms. They've been um, a little more obscure. Mm. Vanessa Rancano, uh, Half Moon Bay is actually a relatively small part of our agricultural system here in the state. You recently visited a town, Planada, near Merced, kind of closer in the, the Central Valley, uh, that was dealing with the effects of the flooding. Can you tell us what you encountered there? Yeah, so as you said, this is a small unincorporated community. It's about 4,000 people um, east of Merced. I was there a couple of weeks ago and people were still in the throes of just cleaning out their homes. So there are these dumpsters that are lining the, the one main street in this little town um, and all day pulling up, throwing out all their furniture, right? So couches and beds, refrigerators, stoves. Meanwhile, some of them were living in these really damaged, moldy homes. Others were still staying with family. Um, some were in a shelter at the fairgrounds or about 40 families were staying in migrant farm worker housing that had temp temporarily been made available for them. Mm -hmm. um, and all the while, they're trying to navigate this this pretty complicated um, system of accessing assistance from FEMA. And uh, what I found was that people had been able to work with local volunteers to access some really basic necessities like water, food, yeah. Yeah, food, water, used clothing, blankets, some cleaning supplies. Um, but the big financial help, the stuff that would really help them replace a house full of furniture, that was much harder to access. And that's in part because the majority, or at least half, according to officials, mm -hmm. of this community is undocumented. And you need a social security number to access FEMA assistance, to access unemployment assistance, Anybody in the household can have a social security number, right? So an, a, a minor child with a social security number could get the household access, but a lot of people don't know that, right? And they see this FEMA logo that says Department of Homeland Security, and it feels very scary to a lot of people. Um, and they just don't, don't have the information. So local officials have been working really hard to try to um, get that information out there. But what I saw is that for some people, there were still all these logistical hurdles, right? Whether, I mean, they were trying to A, clean up their houses, take, B, take care of kids who in some cases had gotten sick after all this flooding, and C, trying trying to work, right? That that was really their priority because that's the only guaranteed source of financial help. Yeah. So some cases, people were prioritizing that and not spending hours waiting in line or spending all this time trying to fill out FEMA applications. Um, and then, let's, of course, some people just aren't eligible because they don't have kids at home. Yeah. Let's uh, just hear the voice of one of the people that you talked to. You visit the home of a couple, uh, Rufino and uh, Esmeralda. Esmeralda, yeah. Esmeralda. Yeah, let's listen. Ahí teníamos cosas, todo que tenía ahí se mojó, tuvimos que tirar todo. Acá también en ese closet también teníamos 
cobijas tenía, mis zapatos, botas, todo. Todo se mojó y tuvimos que tirar. That was uh, Esmeralda, and we're only using the first names of people uh, to protect the privacy of the folks in this community. And, you know, Nessa, she's telling us we have to throw away everything, right? Mm-hmm. And in that cut, she's talking about smaller things. She's pointing to a closet where she had a lot of clothes, blankets, shoes, but, you know, their beds were also destroyed. Their couches, their washer and dryer aren't working. The refrigerator is not working. And they they came to Planada 15 years ago. They worked in agriculture for years um, in fields and packing houses. And then three years ago, started a business, a small business that they were really proud of, um, selling paletas or like popsicles mm-hmm. and um, snacks. And that stuff was destroyed in the flood. The the little truck that they used to sell it, all of the refrigerators, all of the merchandise. Mm. So Rufino estimated that this was more than $20,000 in damage. And the only assistance that they had been able to get um so far i mean to this day because i talked to them last night was a 250 gift card they yeah. had applied three times or tried right to approach fema three different times they um were turned away and told that because their american-born son who is a freshman at uc berkeley is no longer living at home um, they cannot use his social security number to apply God, just heartbreaking. Kid does everything right, gets out of the house, and that's what ends up happening. Such a part of that story. Uh, We're talking about the challenges that California farm workers face. We're getting an update here in this first segment of the show uh, from Vanessa Rancano, housing reporter at KQED News. You can hear more of her report on uh, TCR from yesterday, I believe. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa. Sure. Thanks for having me. We've also been joined by Farida Jovala Romero, uh, who is a reporter with KQD, who's been covering wage theft and has turned her attention uh, to some of these issues. Thank you so much, Farida. Yeah, thank you, Alexis. And we've been joined by Marisa Kendall, who covers housing for the Bay Area News Group, is doing a great job staying on the story. Thank you so much, Marisa. Thanks for having me. When we come back, we're going to broaden out the discussion, talk about the longer arc of challenges that California farm workers have faced, and take some of your calls. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This morning, we're talking about the challenges that California farm workers face in their jobs, in their living conditions, and the efforts that legislators and others have made to to help out. 
We're joined now for the rest of the show by Daniel Costa, who's Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute and a visiting scholar at the Global Migration Center at uh, UC Davis. Welcome, Daniel. Hi, thanks for having me on. Also joined by Michael Mendez, Assistant Professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for having me. Daniel, let's just start with you. Talk a little bit about the size of California's agriculture industry and how and why it relies so much on immigrant labor. Sure. Um, Well, California is the most important uh, farm state, uh, and there's about one third of farm worker employment uh, is actually for the entire nation is in California. Um, And to give sort of a broader perspective, you know, the U.S. farm labor market employs about 2.4 million workers during a typical year to fill uh, what are about 1.5 million full-time equivalent jobs. This is sort of average employment. So that's a little bit less than two farm workers um, per each full-time job. And in California, the ratio of farm workers to jobs is about two to one. So there's about 425,000 jobs in California and about 900,000 farm workers in California. And in terms of employers, the Census of Agriculture reported more than 500,000 farm employers, but there's really something between 105 and 110,000 hmm. agricultural establishments that are registered with uh, with state and employment insurance agency. That's sort of a, a better way to, to look at it. And then just, uh, I guess, the key kind of demographics are um, you know, the vast majority of the workforce in ag are immigrants, and a large majority of those are, are from Mexico. Uh, many came in the late 90s and early 2000s in their 20s and 30s. Now, many are in their 40s. The average age of, of farm workers is around 40. So they're they're aging and, and mostly settled in, in the U.S. and in, and in California. Um, and, uh, you know, I should also say that there, there's anywhere between a quarter and 30 percent of crop farm workers actually are U.S. born citizens, mm-hmm. according to, to survey data from the labor department. So not all farm workers are immigrants. There, there's many uh, native born Americans and they actually work alongside immigrants. And then just sort of the, the last important thing to mention is is something that Farida had mentioned earlier uh, about immigration status. You know, um, something, something like half of, of farm workers are uh, undocumented, and then another 10 to 15 percent are on an H-2A visa, which is the main temporary work program for agriculture. That's about 10, probably around 10 percent of farm workers. So just to kind of reiterate the issue Which is there, tied is to that, their employer too, right? Correct. Exactly, exactly. So the H-2A workers uh, um, are uh, really tied to one employer, essentially indentured. They can't, they can't switch jobs. And if they get fired, they, they lose their, um, they lose their immigration status. So in many ways, they're sort of in the same boat with uh, undocumented workers in terms of fearing retaliation, which could lead to deportation, Uh, except with the H-2A workers, you know, many of them, when they arrive in the United States, they've actually paid recruitment fees, which are, which are, which are Mm -hmm. legal, but almost all of them pay them so that when they're here, they're they're almost essentially in a form of of, of debt bondage. Oh man, Michael Mendez. You know, we saw these storms, we saw this flooding, and that's actually prevented a lot of people from working because the the fields are unworkable. And your research has focused a lot on the intersection of environmental change and vulnerable workers. So, as you were watching this play out, talk to me about what you were seeing and, and thinking about as you saw the storms roll in. Yes, uh, the extreme storms and flooding that we had is a, a continual process of uh, 
climate whiplash or climate-induced disasters that we experience here in California from wildfires, extreme heat, drought, um, storm surges, and, and resulting flooding. So it's really important to understand that these impacts that are happening uh, to farm workers, such as flooding, often are compounding with other types of disasters, or uh, farm workers are experiencing multiple uh, extreme weather events uh, or climactic events throughout the year. And this is happening over and over again as our, our climate changes. And this disproportionately, as the reporters have mentioned earlier, um, has uh, disproportionately affected uh, low-income workers like farm workers, many of them are undocumented and do, do not have access to the type of disaster resources uh, and aid that um, you, uh, legal residents and U.S. citizens have. So we continually see that happen in each disaster event with little um, change from our state and local government and some uh, minor improvements going mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the challenges that California farm workers are facing in this time of you know, climate-induced disasters. Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine, described them. And we're also joined by Daniel Costa, director of immigration law and policy research at the Economic Policy Institute. We would love to hear from you about your questions on California's agriculture industry and how farm uh, labor works. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. We actually already have a call in the queue. Let's bring in uh, Lauren in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi. Um, I help manage a company's uh, farm labor housing in San Mateo County that we recently took over. And there are a lot of improvements that we needed to make when we first um, moved in there. And I just want to draw attention to the fact that most agricultural employers do not make money um, off the farm labor housing from the tenants because you're required to subsidize the rents um, so that it's affordable for your farm labor workers, whether it's through wages um, or just low rent. And every year you have inspections and you're required to make improvements. And there's not a lot of assistance for Hmm. employers to be able to make these improvements. You have to pay out of pocket. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of it is just too much to do in one calendar year. And you have to do it little by little. Um, All the grant programs that are available are either closed or they're only for permits for building new housing. I just think Hmm. that San Mateo County should just be a little bit more to increase that access Mm. to employers to be able to make these improvements. Lauren, this is a really interesting perspective. Like your spot in this ecosystem, what do you think needs to happen? You think San Mateo County needs to essentially provide more dollars and incentives for ag employers to improve the current housing that they have on their land? Yeah, I think specifically for farm labor housing, if there were more grants, then maybe these conditions would be much better. Hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Lauren, thanks so uh, thanks so much for that call. You know, Daniel Costa, I wanted to uh, to bring this to you because this is one of these kind of unique aspects of agricultural labor, and that many of the people who are working in the fields are also living, you know, next to those same fields or, or nearby uh, with an employer. From from your position, is that a is that a good system? Like, how should this work differently? 
Well, uh, you know, with the with the HOA program that I, I mentioned a second ago, in that program, employers are required to uh, provide housing for the workers because the workers are coming from another country, and uh, you know they're earning very low wages, and so they can't really be expected to be able to afford their own housing. They're not required to provide it for uh, U.S. farm workers, whether whether they're immigrants or U or, or U.S. born citizens. If they're not H2A, they're not required to provide the housing, and uh, you know. Providing housing in high-cost California uh, areas, uh, uh, like in Monterey County or in or or in San Mateo County, get, can be a real issue because uh, it's hard to get the permits to build, uh, or it can just be expensive, and that is something that uh, is a real issue. But you know, the employers are are getting a significant benefit of having having the workers come in and having them there. But in terms of the workers, uh, you know, many of these farms are in remote areas. It's very difficult for either worker advocates or union organizers to try to reach them, um, and and that just makes makes them they're almost a, a hidden workforce. It makes it more mm -hmm. difficult. You know, if they if something goes wrong on the job, if they aren't paid the wages are earned, how do they go and find someone from the labor department or the labor commissioner's office to complain? They don't speak don't speak the language. Maybe don't have web access. Are in a in in a, in a remote location, so it creates all kinds of, uh, of issues that really need to be looked at. Yeah. You know, and that's even assuming that things are, are going okay or just going, you know, um, proceeding normally when it comes to the weather and work. Michael Mendez, um, you've written about and talked about why disaster aid has become increasingly important in these communities and, and sort of how folks get left out. Yes, definitely. And, and if we go back to the idea of housing and uh, these uh these farm workers that are on those, those special uh, visas uh, during a disaster, the, everything that Daniel mentioned of those inequities in housing and uh, social integration, lack of uh, uh, access to Internet, lack of access to uh, housing uh, advocates or migrant advocates is only intensified in a disaster. And the research that I've done with local uh, labor and migrant rights and environmental justice groups in Northern California, Sonoma County, we saw that play out several times and the multiple uh, extreme wildfire events that happened. Mm -hmm. Many of these workers didn't have access to transportation, didn't know any any of the emergency information alerts um, or uh, where to go for shelter or even how to get out of their housing. Um, so th that issues have been inequality. It's only intensified in disasters such as wildfires. Yeah. You know, we have another uh, guest to bring on. Let's bring in uh, Javier Zamora, who's the owner of JSM, an organic farm in Royal Oaks, California. Welcome, Javier. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a it's an honor and a pleasure to really uh, talk to you guys and your audience and kind of share some of the uh, challenges and some of the successes that we have. Uh, Royal Oaks, we're here in uh, between Watsonville and Salinas for those people that cannot uh, locate where sure. we're at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, Javier, I, what I'd love to hear from you is like, what is the kind of bind that you're in right now? I mean, you had these incredible floods. What did that do to the farm? And then how did that affect the people who work there? Well, number one thing, I mean, we're really blessed that we got a lot of water. Unfortunately, it was all at once. And, and so that that brought in a bunch of challenges that we were not expecting. The number one challenge that we had is that 
normally winter time for us is kind of like the slow time, but we still have 16 to 18 crew members working during the month of January and February. And this month, there was absolutely no way to work because as you can see, all that we do, it's outside. It's with mother nature. So, and uh, our farm is located near Carneros Creek, which, you know, uh, there were some issues with it, where the water didn't run properly and it flooded and it came over our farm and it flooded all the strawberries that we had just planted in November. And, mm. and, and uh, uh, Did it destroy these, them? Did it like just kill them all? It, it, it washed most of them. Uh, we're, we're just starting, we just came back to work with my, my crew and starting to see how much we're going to be saving and, and what, what can we do to, to recuperate some of those uh, berries that uh, were not washed down the, the stream. So the, the biggest issue that we face besides losing the strawberries is, is not, ha not having our workforce uh, at the farm working as they usually do. Uh, therefore, their, their financial issues became uh, really big, unfortunately, this, this, this early beginning of the season of the year. Yeah. Uh, Javier, so I'm sure some people say to you, like, well, why don't you just pay the people, given that they are your workforce? Why don't you just pay them through this period? Like, could you do that? Do you have the, the credit or savings to be able to sort of front people during this time when they would normally be working for you and we're depending on those wages? Normally, uh, the, the, the quick answer is if I had the money, I would. I'm a, I'm a small family farm independent, one of the very few that does not have the financials or the large conglomerate to face some of these challenges or the federal government finances behind me that can say, yes, here's a chunk of money, bring them all in, put them to do some cleaning inside or whatever it is. We don't have that. And, and you see, you, uh, some of you might know that this is a big issue. A small family farms keep disappearing because we just don't have that. And, and, and in this kind of situation, I can, you know, I'm having a hard time paying my own rent and, and paying my own bills. Mm -hmm. uh, therefore, there's absolutely no chance for me having no income, which normally the farm around this time of the year in January has between fifty to $75,000 of income that has always helped us, you know, mm -hmm. keep our labor force working. In this case, there was just absolutely no income at all and no way for us to do any work mm -hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you've done, um, just in case people want to look it up, is you actually set up a GoFundMe for folks who do ag work in that area, yeah? Correct. So, so I, 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 they suggested to me, and Javier, I mean, you, you're always, you know, doing the best you can to, to, for our farm workers, advocating and, and making sure that the conditions are, are, are humane and pay them as much as they can. So they said, you should probably set up a, a GoFundMe. And so that's what I did. So it, it, if anybody does a little extra money, I mean, we have to help them so they can help us uh, be fed later on. So it's, it's the name of my company is JSM Organics. And also Javier Zamora, so I set that up. And, and it's moving okay. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the, one of the biggest things that we're asking is for people to realize that, uh, you know, farm workers, and I can I consider myself a farm worker. I'm lucky now that I own a farm, but I 
been a farm worker for many, many years. I'm a first generation in America as, as a farm worker, but you know, third uh, generation coming from Mexico. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to, well, people need to realize that we're definitely essential. I think we're a lot more essential than your iPhones and that sort of thing that will not feed you, it will entertain you, but you're gonna be hungry soon. Uh, so, so we are definitely needed for our communities uh, to be fed. Yeah. Javier Zamora with JSM Organics uh, in the Salinas Valley. Thank you uh, so much for joining us and uh, providing uh, your perspective from your part of this uh, ecosystem. We really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Daniel Costa, um, Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. It seems like almost everything about the ag labor system both is broken and has been broken in the same way for a really, really long time. Uh, yes, <laughs> I believe I believe that's the case really since uh, since time uh, time immemorial. Yeah, because you know when you, when you hear the situation of someone like Javier and you imagine the people that are also you know working there, you think about the people in in Half Moon Bay. Is it just we need to pay like a lot more for food? Would that money actually trickle down to agricultural workers? Well, I think sort of the way that things are structured would need to change, but it could make a really big impact. You know, farm workers make so little money that, uh, you know, one thing I published with a, a co-author from UC Davis, Phil Martin, we showed that if you just uh, increased increased uh, um, what a typical family spends on fruits and vegetables in a given year by about $25, that you could increase the wages of farm workers by 40%. This would make a real impact in in their lives. And uh, and some of that has to do with uh, with farmers uh, only getting a, a small share of the of the total price that consumers pay at the store. Mm-hmm. You know, typically for for fresh fruits and vegetables, um, if uh, if you pay three dollars for a pound of strawberries, uh, about one third of that one dollar goes to the farmer, and then about one third of that goes to the farm worker. And so, in some of these, some of the crops, you know, most of the the work and the packing is 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 done in the fields. You know, so a lot of this is is going to the transportation and to the stores. But it would you know require uh, you know a, a restructuring. Um, there's also a lot you know. There's unfortunately a lot of workers are not are not unionized. There's a lot of issues in terms of uh, wage and hour enforcement to protect the wages of farm workers. So I could I could say more about that, but that's uh, yeah. uh, just um, a quick note. A new system. We're talking about the challenges California farm workers face with Daniel Costa, the Economic Policy Institute, and Michael Mendez of UC Irvine. We'll be right back with more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about the living and working conditions of California farm workers. We're joined by Michael Mendez, assistant professor in the School of Social Ecology at the University of California, Irvine, and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. We're also joined by Daniel Costa, director of immigration law and policy research at the Economic Policy Institute and a visiting scholar at the Global Migration Center at the University of California, Davis. Earlier, you heard from Javier Zamora, who's the owner of JSM Organics in uh, Royal Oaks. And we also had a trio of excellent local reporters on at the top of the show, updating us on the latest from Half Moon Bay. We're taking some of your calls and some of your concerns about how farm workers are treated in California and what your questions are about how ag works here uh, in the state, and particularly ag labor. The number is 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at KQED. One listener writes in to say, My parents worked picking crops when they first moved to the United States from Mexico and later moved into processing plants. When I was a kid, my dad took my siblings and me to pick cherries during the summer harvest, and it changed my life. My parents wanted us to see what manual labor is and where food comes from. Farm work is grueling, but noble and deserving of respect and more compensation. I don't think most Americans have that perspective or understanding. Uh, I'm going to bring in another caller. Let's go to uh, Brandon in Watsonville. Welcome, Brandon. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, thanks for... I'm calling from Watsonville. I work at Community Water Center, and we work closely with the farm working community. And something that I wanted to add to the discussion is, you know, we see a lot of households in California that are impacted by water quality contamination and water affordability issues. And many of those households are households that uh, are farm working communities. And so something that we see across the Central Coast, across the Central Valley, uh, is that over a million households are impacted uh, by unsafe uh, drinking water. And that is Mm. absolutely unacceptable here in California. Mm. So, Brandon, um, just so people understand, I've been learning more about this myself uh, recently, just so people ever understand, we're talking about a lot of small farm working communities that are literally like using huge amounts of water in the fields to grow the various crops that the growers are growing. But they themselves at home don't have wells that pump clean water or don't just don't have access to, to water at all. Yeah, correct. Uh, especially in the Central Valley, we're seeing a lot of households impacted by the drought, but we're slowly starting to see that more and more here in the Central Coast. Uh, and that's because a lot of these big ag wells are pulling in lots and lots of water, and the domestic wells that are providing water to households aren't able to capture that groundwater that's so vital for households to be able to drink. Not only that, just being surrounded by fields, a lot of fields that are using uh, pesticides, using fertilizers that contain a lot of contaminants, uh, that then leach into our groundwater and come into our drinking water source. It's unsafe for households, if they do have water, for many households to even drink that water. And that's super concerning in a, in a state that has such, such vast wealth um, that we have households that, that can't even drink the water out of their tap. Mm. 
And is the is the solution there to change the governance of water at that local level? Like, what are you trying to do at the community water center then to to make sure that people have access to clean drinking water? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think solutions, any solution that that happens, needs to be coming directly from the communities that are impacted. And so, yeah, governance is a huge issue. I think also anytime we look at solutions, we need to make sure that solutions uh, are are prioritized in areas that are farm working communities, low income communities, making sure that everyone has the access to the human right to water. Right, water should be a basic human right for everybody. And so, solutions should come from the communities themselves and not imposed on communities. Yeah. Hey, Brandon, thank you so much, uh, Brandon, uh, calling in from the Community Water Center there in uh, Watsonville. I think it's a state, statewide aid um, organization, though. Um, Michael uh, Mendez, um, assistant professor, School of Social Ecology at UC Irvine. I mean, this feels like a very, like, um, in some ways it's a classic environmental justice issue, but it's also we associate environmental justice a lot of time with uh, urban environmental issues. Um what what's your t- I mean, this seems like such a basic thing that everybody should have access to clean drinking water and people living in rural communities, you might think, have access to that clean drinking water. Absolutely. Uh, the human uh, right to uh, water is a basic necessity. And, and we talk to, about farm workers, we talk about them as migrants and immigrants. It's not just about uh, migrant rights issues. It's about human rights and that these impacts from disaster, from the climate crisis, are fundamental, a part of our human rights agenda, and we need to include them better. And particularly around water, as the uh, Community Water Center, one of the leading environmental justice organizations in our state advocating for that human right to water, has really shown when these disparities in water uh, distributions and water access and affordability collide with climate change, such as drought in that case, it only intensifies the pollution uh, of the contaminated water that these individuals are experiencing. So uh, what uh, Brandon mentioned about the nitrates and other types of fertilizer, it, uh, if there's less water in their, that water system or in their private well, mm-hmm. it, it, it has a higher concentration. Concentrates, even, yeah. Yeah, it's not being diluted. So we see that as our changing climate happens, drought and other types of issues, existing environmental inequalities, existing health disparities will only be amplified and worsened. Mm. Honestly, it's just outrageous. I, one of those things, you know, the more the more I've learned about those water issues in the Central Valley, the, the more I – it's just outrageous. Nothing else to say about it. Um, uh, yeah, and, one and listener, they pay the highest water rates for polluted water – in, in the state, if not the country. Mm. Uh, one listener writes in to say, I'm a registered nurse with California Nurses for Environmental Health and Justice. I visited Watsonville to tour farmworker housing where many strawberry pickers live. Every year, they must all leave their houses in late fall and cannot return until spring. It's a huge hardship for them to have to relocate. Meanwhile, the farmworker housing remains vacant during these months. This causes many social determinants and health issues for farmworkers. We owe them so much more. Um, we also have a caller, Kendra, in Woodlands on the topic of farmworker housing. Welcome, Kendra. Thank you. Uh, thanks to your guests and for this show. And hi, Javier. Um, I, earlier, I'm calling about the issue of housing again. Um, so, so thanks for that comment, too. I heard um, a guest speak about the importance of uh, many farm worker families having arrived 
um, in California and now to stay, um, who are planning to stay and who are an essential part of these agricultural communities. And I'm wondering um, about the comment about moving the burden of farm worker housing, um, maybe sharing it a little bit more away from just the farm employers themselves, but thinking about um, borrowing some affordable community um, organized housing models, such as community land trusts mm-hmm. um, and other ways that we might um, provide more permanent and community focused housing um, that farm workers are able to stay in and, and, and remain part of our communities. Any thoughts from you? Yeah, that's a, what a great question, Kendra. Uh, Michael Mendes, maybe this goes to you. Yes, excellent question. Um, housing is fundamental. There's been very uh, uh, several housing surveys and house surveys that have really shown the dilapidated nature of farm worker housing. You know, from lack of uh, water access, lack of electricity. Um, these these homes, as our changing climate, are, are not being able to withstand the extreme heat, let alone the extreme colds or rain that are happening more and more. Salinas uh, Salinas Valley did an excellent housing farm worker study and really showing the need and our, our incoming state assembly speaker uh, Robert Rivas uh, has made this a fundamental issue that he hopes and seeks to expand farm worker housing and government subsidies and grants to ensure that these individuals are living in, in, in sanitary conditions and um, have quality housing that can withstand our changing climate. Yeah. You know, Daniel Costa, as we talk about um, prospective legislation or, or these kinds of changes, I mean, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is that every time I dive into this area, it's just the gulf between the laws on the books, which are actually pretty solid for farm workers, and the actual law in the field are just totally different. So what do we know about trying to close that kind of implementation gap or, or you know, what lessons we've learned about trying to implement reforms in egg? Well, uh, to start, I would probably have to disagree with you a little bit that the the laws on the books are 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 great. Uh, you know, farm workers have historically been excluded from some of the the major laws that protect. Not great, just most, slightly most better. <laughs> you know, um, in California, things are a little bit better. In California, farm workers have the right to organize. In California, farm workers now, over the last few years, it's been phased in for them to get overtime pay. In California. Um, uh, workers have, you know, heat standard protections, but most farm workers across the United States do not have those protections at all. Mm-hmm. And so um, th- I think that uh, in terms of getting some sort of federal law passed, there's just unfortunately not a lot of political will. You know, the main uh, legislation that was on the table um, for the past couple of years is called the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. It, uh, it included some additional protections like uh, protection from the Migrant Seasonal Worker Protection Act, the main farm worker law that protects workers, uh, expanding expanding it to H-2A workers. But other than that, what it mostly did is sort of expand the the H-2A system, which I I think is a flawed system in a lot of ways. It would have required employers to use uh, an employment, uh, an electronic employment verification system, which is called E-Verify. And then it would have uh, legalized a lot of uh, farm workers, which was the best best part of that law. But um, even something like 
like that that didn't make uh, you know mm-hmm. m- major changes um you know is just politically politically uh going to be a non-starter in this uh in this uh in this this congressional session yeah. with a republican led uh, led house but i want to stay on you know once there is a law in the books you know for example 2016 california law requiring agricultural employers to pay overtime you know which is in the in the process of rolling out between you know then and 2025 um it seems like with something like that, there are also just problems with basic enforcement. Or when we talk about the housing situation, it's not as if there aren't laws that say you can't build unpermitted farm worker housing somewhere, but it's happening anyway. So that that's kind of where my question is going, is what would be required in you know Northern California to start closing the gap between you know what's supposed to be happening and what actually is happening? Sure. So, I mean, I would say that um, both at the federal and the state level, that one of the main issues has been the fact that uh, at the federal level, the wage and hour division, and then at the California level, the the labor commissioner's office or the division of labor standards enforcement are uh, are just vastly underfunded and understaffed. Um, to give you just a you know a quick snapshot uh, at the national level, you know in 2021 there was only a thousand inspections of farms by federal wage and hour um, by the federal wage and hour division. That accounted for you know even by a conservative estimate less than one percent of farms. That means that farm employers know that there's very little chance that, they'll, that they will ever be investigated, which really allows them to break the, the law with, with impunity. And so, um, but, you know, a study that I did with a couple of co-authors, we found that when the Wage and Hour Division does inspect farms, they almost always detect violations. In fact, 70% of the time that they, they inspect a farm, they detect wage and hour violations, mm-hmm. which sometimes can include uh, housing rules as well. So you can imagine that if there were more inspectors and more inspections, they would find more violations on farms. But that's going to require uh, more funding from Congress and and the state to do that. A listener writes in to say, I'm a third generation Californian, 76 years old. All my life, farm worker justice has been an issue. As a teen, the so-called Bracero program made news. As a college student at SF State, the farm worker justice movement was consistently on campus, educating, even co-sponsoring the third world strike. As a midlife adult public school teacher, I traveled to Washington, D.C., where a third political party was coalescing around equal justice for all. Obviously, none of these actions change much for the farm workers in the fields. Read The Grapes of Wrath. Read just the last chapter, if not the all the book. The farm workers in that novel were poor whites from the Dust Bowl almost 100 years ago. Otherwise, the stories are pretty much the same. Um, Charles in in Oakland, also with some uh, historical perspective. Welcome, Charles. Hi. Thank you. I would like to follow up on the statements made by the email you just read. I was a VISTA volunteer worker 60 years ago in Tracy, California. And prior to that, there was the Edward R. Murrow Harvest of Shame. Mm -hmm. There was the Farm Security Administration photos of Walker Evans and uh, Dorothea Lang and Gordon Parks. So as we just turn a blind eye, yeah, you know, we don't wake up to the reality and change the situation, which any any people of kindness and heart would do for their fellow citizens. Mm, that's right. Charles, thank you so much for, for that comment. And, and Michael Mendez, I want to I want to take this one to you. I mean, you focus on the environmental justice movement. You, you focus on these kinds of changes. Give us some 
I don't know, some hope, some direction. I mean, if these things have been issues for this long, they're obviously not easy to solve. If they would, might have worked out something a little better. So where do you, where, what do you draw on then to, uh, to chart a path forward? On resilience and the, the hope that these advocates and these everyday people uh, and their local communities are wanting to thrive and make a difference for their family. That's why they came here in the first place. And I, I've seen that. I've been a part of networks and as advisors to um, a, uh, advocate groups that are seeking reform and disaster uh, in the disaster sphere. So here, just really acknowledging that we can do better. Uh, while there's inertia in Washington, D.C. at the federal level on immigration reform, here in California at the county and local level, we can do better. I work closely with the North Bay Jobs with Justice in uh, Sonoma County, who have really pushed local leaders, the Board of County Supervisors, in, uh, this past summer to um, put aside $2 million for disaster aid uh, mm-hmm. for farm workers that lose work, uh, lose property or other types of possessions during uh, wildfire events and the recent storm that they had up there as well. Uh, uh, the Board of Supervisors allocated another $600,000 for uh, a disaster aid to local communities. And other groups have really pushed uh, 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 multinational or conglomerate wineries up in that region. Ernest and Gallo, through labor organizing um, and their recent contract, has enacted um, hazard pay. So when the air quality reaches a level of uh, unhealthy for the general population or one to, uh, over 150 on the uh, air quality index, then um, our Ernest and Gallo Winery, which is the largest winery in mm-hmm. Sonoma County, will provide hazard pay. Um, and that was extended to a, a, a local uh, large organic family, uh, organic uh, winery as well. So there are some um, changes. It's happening slow and inc- incrementally, but it does take political organizing. It takes research. We're doing research on air quality to really uh, show what type of exposure and health risk uh, these farm workers are experiencing during um, extreme um, climactic climactic events like wildfires. So uh, yeah. I do have hope. That's why I continue to engage on this. And I gain that hope from the advocates on the ground. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. I, you know, I just wanted to note we have another listener who points out that there's a great um, article on, on these issues at the Food Environment Reporting Network. You know, people call it FERN. And the article is Extreme Weather Creates a Food Crisis for California Farm Workers. Go check that out. Um, if you want to keep following these issues, which I want you to, Farida Javala Romero, reporter at KQED, she's mostly focusing on wage theft and things with employers and has been doing an amazing job on that, as well as uh, with ag labor. Vanessa Roncano, also here at KQED, uh, has done that reporting on flooding in the Central Valley. You can check that out. Marisa Kendall, covering ha- uh, housing for the Bay Area News Group, is following up on the housing issues in Half Moon Bay. All three of them were on earlier. If you're interested in those water issues, the Community Water Center, look that up. Javier Zamora was the owner of JSM Organic Farm, was on earlier. He's got a GoFundMe. If you search Javier Zamora, GoFundMe, farm worker, you will find it. And we've been joined for these last 40 minutes uh, by Daniel Costa, Director of Immigration Law and Policy Research at the Economic Policy Institute. Thank you so much for joining us, Daniel. Thanks again for having me. And Michael Mendez, assistant professor at the School of Social Ecology, the University of California, Irvine, and author of Climate Change from the Streets, How Conflict and Collaboration Strengthen the Environmental Justice Movement. Thank you so much, Michael. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, 
the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.